Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Uh, what are the ultimate questions in life? They've been with humanity throughout any recorded culture or history. Uh, and the ultimate questions are the obvious ones. What's it mean to be a human being? Where do we come from? Where are we going to? Why do human beings have such problems? Why do I have problems? And what are the solution? You know, one of the earliest attempts to deal with that is a second millennium epic called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you've probably read it or heard of it. Um, when I say the second millennia BC, it's really probably older than that, but the oldest versions that have been found are, are on cuneiform tablets uh, in the Iraqi desert, and they go back to the second millennia. Uh, it's interesting because Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk, which is a town about 70 miles north of Ur, where Abraham came from, because the biblical story, at least the historical part of it, or the claims to the historical part of it, start with Abram, Abram or Abraham coming out of, uh, out of Ur. And so he would have known of the Gilgamesh epics. Even the Romans knew of it uh, 2,000 years later. Um, and so what's the Gilgamesh epic? Well, Gilgamesh is this powerful king of Uruk. Um, nobody can stand against him. He takes whatever he wants. It's a very odd city. Gilgamesh claims to have the first right to every bride on her wedding night. He can also have his way with any of the men in town. Uh, he does what he wants. In fact, he is so overbearing that the gods, um, the gods take a dislike to him. And so they create a natural human being named Enkidu, who grows up amongst the wild, uh, is nursed by gazelles, wrestles with lions, all that kind of thing. And he stands between uh, Gilgamesh and a bride's chamber one night, and he's going to stop Gilgamesh from doing that. But uh, no, Gilgamesh defeats him. But in the defeat, Gilgamesh and Enkidu become great friends. And so they set out on a series of adventures. That's why it's an epic the first thing they decide to do is they're going to destroy Huwawa or Humbaba, depending on how you pronounce it, who is this monster that guards the cedars of Lebanon. And so they walk all the way from Uruk, which is in southern modern uh, Iraq. They've actually discovered it on an abandoned channel of the Euphrates. It actually existed. And uh, they march to the cedars of Lebanon where they're going to kill Hubaba who is a fire-breathing monster with ma massive tusks. And so they find him, and they, they pin him down, and Hubaba begs for their lives, his life, please show mercy. But no, Enkidu and Gilgamesh just destroy him and, and, and pull him apart. Um, and so the gods get angry with Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and they send the bull of heaven to fight with Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And so what happens? Gilgamesh and Enkidu uh, defeat the bull of heaven. It's really a very human story. Gilgamesh and Enkidu defy the gods. Uh, they cut down the cedars of Lebanon. They create a wasteland at Hubaba, who is the monster that the gods put there to protect the forest. They didn't care. They destroyed it anyway. When Ishtar, one of the goddesses, come to confront them for killing the bull of heaven, Enkidu takes a haunch from the bull of heaven and throws it in her face. 
So these are not guys you want to have come over for dinner. So the gods decide that they're going to send a disease and kill Enkidu. And when they do that, Enkidu dies. Gilgamesh holds on to his body for seven days until it begins to rot. So he buries it. And then he has to deal with the agony of death of his best friend. And nothing, even despoiling virgins on their wedding night, seems to make him happy anymore because death is uh, over everything. And so he hears of uh, a man who has survived death. His name is Uda Napishti, but he lives under the world, so he has to go there to meet Uda Napishti. It really, it's a great store, old story. And so to get there, he has to race the sun. And so, you know, when you look out and you see the sun go down behind the horizon, in Gilgamesh, it goes into this cave under the earth and then comes out of the other end of the cave and rises and, and goes up into the sky again. And so Gilgamesh has to race the sun to the entrance to that cave and then run so fast underground that the sun can't catch him. And he finally crosses the, uh, the body of water uh, of death to find Uda Napishti on an island. He had to cut 300 poles that were 100 feet in length. And he used each one only once to push himself across the lake. And so it took 300 poles to get to where he was, he was going to go. And there he talks to Uda Napishti, who tells him, he'll tell him the secret of immortality if he can stay awake for seven days and seven nights. That is, if he won't sink into unconsciousness. But Gilgamesh fails because, well, who can stay awake seven days and seven nights? But Udinapishti tells him about the secret to how to conquer death anyway. So he has to dive down into the ocean, swim to the bottom, and he has to get to the foundations of the world where he finds the flower of immortality. And then he brings it up, and he's just on the verge of having immortality when a, a snake, believe it or not, a serpent, uh, steals it from him and slithers silently away. Once again, Gilgamesh has defied the gods, has defied death, but he's failed. He returns to Uruk, defeated, and the poem ends, and presumably Gilgamesh dies, because it's the fate of every human being to die. But it's interesting that this ancient story is about the hero king. It's a story about defying death. It's a story about the serpent stealing immortality uh, as if the, the consequences of eating an apple uh, might actually bring death into your life. Uh, or at least in the story of Gilgamesh, it's the flower of immortality. Um, but there is another king, and that's the celebration we have this weekend, Christ the King, uh, who defeats death. Because there is only one who can defeat death, and that's the son of the Creator, and so let's talk about the seven last things. Normally we talk about the four last things, but let's consider the seven last things before we turn to the remarkable, hopeful story of Christ the King. The human concern with death and the effort to defeat it still goes on. Modern science wants to put death off as long as it can. There's some that argue that death can be conquered simply through scientific means. Well, this goes back a long ways. But you know, to talk about the, the end of life, that's eschatology. And there's a personal eschatology, how each of our lives will end. 
and there is a general eschatology, and that's the study of the time and history when everything ends, um, because no matter what you do, uh, entropy is going to lead to the heat death of, uh, of the universe. Um, and so traditionally when we talk about the last things, we talk about the four last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And those are all final kinds of things. But really in that whole discussion, the seven last things are death, judgment, heaven, purgatory, hell, resurrection, and the new creation. So I'm gonna briefly go through our Catholic understanding of each of these things. So first, death, um, biblical death. Biblical death is when the soul leaves the body. Uh, we know that the soul leaves the body because I've been to a bunch of funerals and there's a, a body there. Um, then the, the modern theologians think, well, maybe you get another body immediately after death, but that doesn't seem to be well attested in the scriptures. Uh, for the modern world, uh, death is hidden away. Um, it's not as up close and personal as it was in the ancient world. Uh, we get a lot of help in America with people who are dying. But still, if you the basic ideas of dying, it's, it's the end of earthly life. It's the separation of the soul from the body. Um, Catholics don't believe in reincarnation. You know, some people say, uh, I'll come back. But you know, in Buddhism and Hinduism, the idea is to escape reincarnation and stay out of this world of misery. Mostly people think reincarnation is a positive thing or the very wealthy because they think they'll just come back as a better version of themselves. Pay close attention to most of the wealthy people who believe in reincarnation. Um, they were always wealthy. It's the problem of, I think, the rich. They can't imagine what it's like to be poor. But to separate soul from body, um, that is a very apparent reality if you've ever been to a funeral. And remember, we are this um, beast that has the souls, the spirit that is like an angel, not an angel, cause, but like an angel. So we have this spiritual reality to us that's immortal, and we have this um, animal part of us that is mortal. And so that when we take care of our souls, we're taking care of the part of us that will survive. Because even Gilgamesh understood that the body rotted away. And so for, for Christians and Jews, the origin of death is, of course, the consequence of sin. God is the only one that lives forever. And when you disconnect from God, well, it leads to death. And so that leads to the second um, final thing, the particular judgment. And the particular judgment is when you die, you immediately know your eternal uh, destiny because you meet God and, uh, and you get that particular judgment. The general judgment, which is another one of the seven last things, happens for all of humanity at the very end of time when purgatory goes away, the world as it is goes away, uh, and the new world comes. But our particular judgment um, is what decides whether or not we go to hell or to heaven, like we believe with the saints, or purgatory, because those are the other three realities amongst the seven last things. Heaven is um, union with God. Uh, it's, uh, it is 
prefigured in our reception of the Eucharist, us and God and God in us. And so it's uh, to participate in the life of the Trinity. It's uh, being with Jesus and Mary and the saints. It's a perfect self-understanding as much as our human minds can, can understand and it's perfect knowledge of God and heaven uh, and paradise. Um, it's where we have full understanding. And so heaven in the catechism is the beatific vision, the blessed vision. Um, and it's seeing God as God is. That's what the scriptures say. Um, there is a controversy about it. Martin Luther thought that after you die, there was no purgatory because he wanted to discourage prayer for the dead. And so his idea was uh, when you died, uh, you went into a soul sleep and you just woke up and there was the general judgment at the end death and the final resurrection. But that's never been the Catholic or Orthodox understanding, nor does it comport well uh, with St. Paul and the understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, modern theologians suggest that the resurrection happens at the moment of death uh, because time goes away, uh, because the world as we know it no longer exists for us. Um, so, But you know, they're just arguments you can always listen to. Um, they're really not anything you can resolve. Uh, but Pope Benedict, who's a very smart guy, um, he points out, this is actually Pope Benedict Twelfth, another very smart guy. He says, heaven's been open since the ascension of Jesus. So heaven is existing right now. That's why we know that there are saints in heaven and the assumption of Mary into heaven, uh, chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. Uh, and so according to Benedict, Benedictus Deus, uh, the blessings of God, the beatific vision is something that's open to people now. And so if you look at the book of Revelation, uh, Revelations chapter 4 and 5, uh, it is an image of the saints and the angels worshiping at the altar in heaven. And so there is a biblical basis for this understanding that when you die, you don't go into a soul sleep. Um, you could actually be in heaven. You could just hit long and straight, which would be really nice. Uh, because there's, uh, there's people offering uh, uh, prayers and praise to the, to the lamb on the altar, and uh, there's incense being used, which is, of course, why we use incense in the Catholic and the Orthodox uh, communions. But one of the things that will go away at the general judgment, of course, is pure purgatory. And purgatory is very well attested in the New Testament and the Old, uh, prayers for the dead were offered in 2 Maccabees chapter 12. Um, uh, St. Peter says in his letter, uh, 1 Peter, is that, um, that some will enter heaven as, as if suffering fire in this life, which is we think of the cleansing fires of purgatory and why we say, and it's safe to say, God is fire in hell, God is fire in purgatory, God is fire in heaven. Um, it's either uh, destruction of those that will not open themselves to God, cleansing of those who want to come closer to God or heaven, the participation in the heavenly passion, the heavenly fire of, uh, of living in the presence of God. Um, God as fire is one of the most common ways of thinking about him in the Old Testament. And so uh, that leads to <coughs> one of the permanent aspects of the seven last things. I mean, the purgatory, the final judgment, the particular judgment, all kind of pass, this earth passes. But hell is uh, very clearly 
uh, spoken of by uh, Jesus and a reality for those uh, wailing and gnashing their teeth in the darkness outside of the kingdom of heaven. This is not something any of uh, should want. Uh, and so in, even in the ancient world, there were places of punishment in the afterworld in Sheol or the pit, which was the lowest region of Sheol for the damned. Um, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, were a place of uh, child sacrifice, according to Second Kings and Second Chronicles and Jeremiah. Uh, the Gehenna was a place cursed by God. And it's why Jesus refers to Gehenna, which is the same place as Gehenna, which is a valley on the other side of Jerusalem from the Kidron Valley. And it's just a place where the garbage is dumped and burned, which is an awful way to think about it. Um, but it's an awful place. It's the place of unquenchable fire, like a big garbage dump. Um, but uh, hell is a permanent reality. Uh, how many people go to hell? Well, Jesus says, uh, uh, enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't say how many people go to hell. Is hell a permanent place? Origen, who is considered a heretic in the ancient church, thought that even at the end, hell went away because of the mercy of God. But that's been a big controversy, as you know, in the, in the modern world. Hans Urs von Balthasar picked up on that. And, uh, and it's just been one of more of those volleyballs in the church uh, where to just sit and look at the mystery of it all, of the outer darkness. Um, but the last judgment, that's an occurrence. There's, you know, out of the seven last things, the particular judgment, then the last judgment, uh, where the, uh, which is really what the gospel is about um, in Matthew 25 for this Sunday, and we're going to get to that. But at least we know the background of all of the things that are uh, leading up to the final judgment. And then, of course, what our hopes are. Then the last permanent thing, and it's accounted in um, the uh, book of Revelation. Do you remember where the new Jerusalem descends out of the sky? That's often a funeral reading, and it's 1,500 stadia by 1,500 stadia, basically as big as the Mediterranean world. Um, and uh, the Ha'abad, the Jewish people would call it, I believe I've said it right, um, which is the world that is to come because a resurrected body doesn't live in the clouds, it lives in the world. So the four last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven, hell and heaven really are the only things that survive at the very end, and the new heaven and the new earth, um, because death and judgment are things of the past. Purgatory would be a thing of the past. Um, and so uh, ultimately the and destinations for all of us are either heaven or hell. And so how does that set up the backdrop um, for the ending of the liturgical year and the final stanzas of chapter 25 of the Gospel of Matthew, where Christ the King, not like Gilgamesh, but a king of judgment with control over life and death, tells us what the final exam will look like. So if you remember my retelling briefly, the story of Gilgamesh, I've been reading it. Uh, there's a new translation out. And it's really, I love ancient 
text. I think they're wonderful to read because it's this common humanity that stretches over four millennia, which is pretty remarkable. Um, but Jesus talks about the end of human life and what uh, immortality looks like. So think about immortality as existence beyond death. And you have immortality in heaven or hell. And so immortality is not the goal of the Christian life. Um, life in and with God is the goal of the Christian life. And Jesus is very clear in chapter 25. He talks about the 10 virgins. Be wise, prepare yourself. He talks about us being trusted with these great talents, this, this wealth, and we show, should show some reserves, re, return on it. And what's that look like? Well, friends, it's for a Catholic, it's, it's nothing that you haven't heard before. Matthew 25, verse 31. And Jesus said to his disciples, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is God in judgment, and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be assembled before him, because he's the judge of everybody. And he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, because God knows his own. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. Ill and you cared for me. In prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least brothers of mine, you did for me. And then, you know, it flips around, right? For those that did not welcome him, uh, those that did not visit him. This is the root of what we Catholics call the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. And it really is something you could put on your refrigerator as you think every day of what you're going to get up and that what you're going to do for God and your salvation. And so right out of Matthew 25, the corporal works of mercy for the corpus, the body. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, get alms to the poor, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned bury the dead, take care of other people's um, bodies. And then the spiritual works of mercy, which the church pulls out of the rest of the New Testament, and it's these things. Instruct the ignorant. Ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is just people who don't know. So don't treat people like they're stupid. Just give them the right information and let them come to the right conclusions. Counsel the doubtful, people who are wavering, uh, affirm them and help them, uh, you know, especially with people who are far away from the church and the life they live. Think of them as ignorant and doubtful and counsel them and love them. And maybe they will turn and, uh, and become sincere followers of the Lord. Admonish the sinner. Uh, point out why someone is unhappy. If you live in immorality, it's just not going to live and lead to happy consequences on this side of death or on the other. And then uh, spiritual works of mercy, forgive injuries. Don't hold it other, over other people's heads. You just give them a reason to run away. Comfort the sorrowful. 
because despair can come out of sorrow uh, or hope. And so much of it is about the comfort that people could find in our our patient uh, being with them, especially uh, when you show up for uh, a loved one's funerals. Bear wrongs patiently. Learn to control our tempers and pray for the living and the dead. Every day, pray for the living and the dead. So the spiritual works and the corporal works of mercy, um, this is the way to eternal life. Uh, without caring for other people's bodies or their souls, which is how the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy break down, um, it's not eternal life, it's just eternal existence, uh, lonely and alienated. Uh, all of these things that the scriptures describe is how you connect with other people. Uh, and you don't hold up a test that they have to meet before you, um, before you connect. There is no such thing as the worthy and the unworthy poor. There's just people who are ignorant, doubtful, sinners. Um, they injure people like in, in wild rages or they're despair or sorrowful. They're impatient. Um, and it could come out of uh, their in poverty, um, their lack of things, or it could become that there's just too much of things. And they've come to rely on their own strength like Gilgamesh relied on his own strength. So anyway, the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy, these are key to the Christian life. So let's just reflect on um, all those questions that, um, that were raised uh, before I started to talk about Gilgamesh. Who am I, body and soul? Where am I from, God and my parents? Where am I going? Heaven, I hope. Um, how, what is my problem? Disconnection from God. Um, what's the solution? Trusting in God, following the best we can. Christians have the best answers to these questions and they're ancient questions because they're rational, faithful questions uh, and answers uh, rooted in our experience of the risen Christ. So let's go back and pull this liturgical year together as we talk about uh, the feast of Christ the King. You know, the second reading for uh, Christ the King is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by St. Paul. St. Paul did not know Jesus as, as a person, a historical person. He met the resurrected Jesus sometime after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. But he writes powerfully about Christ as king and judge. And so he says, brothers and sisters, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be brought to life. But each one in proper order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, hopefully that's us. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God his Father, when he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and power. So these are the last things. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When everything is subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all, which is the very nature of God's intent in creation. But where Gilgamesh sought to find some remedy uh, the flower of immortality, so he could keep on being Gilgamesh, which, you know, doesn't sound like he was much of a guy that you want to be around anyway. 
Um, it's much like the problem of, uh, of those who would seek immortality on their own terms uh, by simply uh, figuring out how it is that you could keep the body going indefinitely or those who think they could offload their, uh, their personalities and intellect into a computer or dark matter. I've heard all of these things. Um, but ultimately, this is not something in human control. It's only something that God can give. You know, there's two errors that you can make about Christianity. And the first is, uh, I'm saved because I believe Jesus is the Son of God, therefore I don't have to do anything, and I'm going right to heaven. And there are Christians that preach that, but that, my friend, is just not right. Those are people who don't read Matthew 25. When um, Jesus comes as the end-time judge, and he separates the goats from the sheep. Uh, it isn't what you believe, just that, but it's also what you do. And so the other side of it is this. The other error is besides, I don't have to do anything to be saved. The other error, error is, uh, I have to earn my salvation. Um, did I do enough? Have I loved enough? Did I give enough? All of these things, you know, uh, the answer is no, you didn't. Nobody can. Um, that's why we need grace. And that's why Catholics say salvation comes through faith that work, works. You believe properly and you act properly. But it's always as a human being. Um, and so I, I just leave with this story of this wonderful lady who had made some very poor choices early in her life. But boy, she just had a rough family. God bless her. And now she's in her 40s, and she has a husband that loves her. She has children that she loves and who love her right back. And she has this feeling that I don't deserve any of it. I've heard more than one person say that. Everybody feels I don't deserve the happiness that I have. Well, my friends, you're right. You don't. This is Christianity. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to save you, not because you deserve it, because God loves you, because this is what love is. And you just have to accept that you're loved like that. And once you accept that you're loved like that, well, then you have to swim down to the deepest part of the ocean to find a flower of immortality. God will give it to you. The problem of Adam and Eve is the problem of humanity. We think we can take it, but really, it's only a gift that can be received. And then received with praise and glory to the giver. This is the Christian faith. It's why it's a beautiful faith. And I'm counting on uh, instructing you ignorant, doubtful, sorrowing, sinful listeners to Oro Valley Catholic, we're my favorite listeners, because this is what God does for each of us. So enjoy your feast of Christ the King and uh, look forward to talking to you about the first weekend of Advent. God bless you, and I'll see you soon. <music>